0: Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 today serves as a continuation of last week's message. Last week, we began the second half of 2 Timothy. In chapter 3, we noted details for us, the things we need to be aware of and to do in order to live in a wicked world. We noted that as believers, experiencing this wicked world can be frustrating, frustrating, Uh, discouraging, maybe even scary at times, that as society degrades around us, uh, we maybe worry about the kind of world our children or our grandchildren will inherit. And we're concerned about this thing. And as we watch the news, we follow social media, at times we wonder how much worse it can get. And it just keeps getting worse. Perhaps we wonder, is this God's plan? Is God forgotten? Is he Blind to what is going on. How can we continue to live in this mess as Christians? But in the second uh, half here of second Timothy, we receive from God both a reminder and practical insight into how to live in a wicked world, because what we face is not new. new to us, but it's not new. History is simply repeating itself. And while the degradation of society around us is scary and different for us, it's not unseen by God. And so we can have confidence and hope in the middle of a wicked world. And today we will discuss how to live in a wicked world and continue this conversation. So let's begin by reading the first nine verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes, but understand this, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So last week as we looked at this text, we looked at the first of two important keys to living in a wicked world. Let's review that to bring us up to speed because it's been a week. And then we'll continue with the next section of this. The first key that we noted was that living in this wicked world, we need to understand the day we live in. We need to understand what's going on. He says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. In order to live and thrive in the middle of the wicked world, we must understand what we are facing, what exactly is happening and why it's happening. Because if we come to a wrong conclusion about why the things that are happening are happening, we'll come to wrong solutions about what is happening and how to fix what is happening. Our response will be equally as wrong. So we need to understand that we are living in the last days. Passages like Isaiah 2.2, Micah 4.1 reveal that the expression in the last days refers to the age ushered in by Christ's appearance on the earth. This is the age of the fulfillment of the promises of redemption and and promises that, that will attain even more fulfillment when Christ returns a second time. The New Testament's also clear that we're in the last days, that the end times began when Christ died, was buried, rose, and then ascended into heaven. That began the end times. So are we living in the last days, the end times? Yes. They began with Christ's ascension, and they will end with His return. We see that in 1 Corinthians 10.11, in 1 Peter 1.20, and in 1 John 2.18. Because that's true, we need to come to grips with what's going to characterize those last days or these last days we're in. And we're told that there will be times or seasons of difficulty, literally seasons of danger. Until Christ returns, we can expect that there will be seasons, there will be periods of crisis and evil. And as we get even closer to Christ's second coming, these seasons will increase in number and in magnitude. We must understand what we're facing. The evil that we face is not something that can be avoided. It's not something that will simply go away. This this wicked world is not something that is an accident or that is unseen by God He knew it was coming. He promised us it was coming. He told us it was coming. And so it should not be something that causes us to fear or to be discouraged. Instead, we're reminded that God is working all things out for the furtherance of his kingdom. What happens at the end of these last days? His kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. The gospel is ushered in ushers in his kingdom And the gospel promises that we're on the right side of history and that he will reign for all eternity. So so we don't have to be discouraged. We don't have to be frustrated. We don't have to be angry about the things that are happening because the answer to this world's problems is the gospel. It is in God's people sharing the gospel with those around them and living out the gospel in front of them. But that's not easy and it's not going to be easy because seasons of intense difficulty will come and are now here. And that's what we saw Paul describe in verses 2 through 5 with a list that, that really, as you look at it, will make your blood curdle. It's, it's, it's a daunting list describing the wickedness of this world. And we saw that there were four things about this list that we noted that are important if we're to understand the day that we live in. This wicked world is and will be marked by a focus on self. It's going to be all about self. We can't come away from that list without noticing the focus on the self that marks the times of difficulty in these last days. They'll be lovers of self They'll be lovers of money. They'll be proud. Literally, they'll be braggarts boasting to the extent of of unbelievability. They'll they'll surpass the truth as they try to exalt themselves. They'll be swollen with conceit, literally filled with hot air, blowing smoke so much so that they can't even see what they're saying. And they'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And And modern man might call it humanism and celebrate it. Live authentically. Be your best now. You be you. Love yourself. Build your self-esteem. But God calls it sin and selfishness and a sinful departure from him. We saw, secondly, that it is marked by a disregard for others. Because they are so consumed with themselves, they really will have no regard for other people. He said, they'll be arrogant. Literally, they will look on others with disdain. They'll be abusive, specifically in their speech. It's the word blasphemy. They'll slander other people. They'll be heartless. They won't even love people. It's natural for them to love. We see this in the breakdown of the family and the abuse that takes place in families. They'll be unappeasable. There is no middle ground with them. No truce. You are with me 100% or you are my complete enemy. They do not take any kind of correction because any kind of correction indicates you're my enemy. There's no middle ground. They're slanderous. Literally, it's the word we get diabolical from. It's those who promote quarrels and demean others in a hope to gain from it. They maliciously gossip and put down others so that they might try and build themselves up. They're without self-control. They cannot resist temptation. They have no self-restraint as they pursue the the desires that they want, even to the extent that they harm those around them and even themselves. They're brutal, like untamed animals. They savage people around them. They're treacherous. They betray used of those who don't keep their word. And they're reckless. They're hasty and impulsive in the things that they do. Third, we saw from this list that it's marked by a disdain for authority. They don't care about authority. In fact, they see it as an impediment to get what they want. It says they're disobedient to their parents. And we noted that those who will not obey their parents have never learned to do that, will not obey anyone else. They hate authority. Who are you to tell me what to do? I'm an American. I'm free. They despise authority. They're ungrateful. They're not grateful for what is provided for them. They have a sense of that the world owes them things. They're unholy. They don't care about things that are right. They don't love good. In fact, Romans 1 tells us they call it evil. And they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. When they have to choose between pleasing God and pleasing self, they will always please themselves. But lest we look out and condemn the world around us, we're reminded that the, at the end that this, that this world is marked by a false religiosity. Verse 5 says, Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. They like the visible expressions and the visible practices of religion. They think themselves to be obviously righteous because they're obviously religious. But true Christianity is not in the show of religion. It's not just simply by showing up on Sunday and sitting in a pew, but in the powerful proclamation of the gospel accompanied by the life of obedience that conforms to the demands of the gospel. And these people attend the worship services of the church. They sing the hymns, they say amen to the prayers, they give to the church in the money boxes, They, they look and they sound extremely righteous, but it's form without power. It's outward show without inward reality, a religion without morals and faith without works. And that leads to what we want to talk about new today, the second important key to living in this wicked world. And that is this, we must avoid the wicked who infiltrate the church, avoid the wicked who infiltrate the church. The reality is that from the founding of the church, wicked philosophies, actions, and beliefs of the world have subtly infiltrated the church. So it's vital that we're aware of this, that we're on guard against it and avoid this danger. We're to to mark those wicked who infiltrate the church and avoid them. Note the end of verse 5. He says, avoid such people. For among those, among them, are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. It begins by telling us to avoid these wicked who infiltrate the church. It means not just to stay away from them. This word literally means to turn away from them in horror. To look at what they're doing with such horror, you don't want to follow it. Now, what should be obvious here, I hope, is that God is not instructing us to have no contact with sinners. Even Jesus was a friend of publicans and sinners. We are in the world. However, what we need to be aware of and avoid are those who would infiltrate the church and lead it away from its moorings in the word of God. We're to avoid the false teachers who peddle philosophies and actions and attitudes that are contrary to the word of God. This is a very real problem in the world today. And it's even more exacerbated by modern media, the access that we have to so many people who claim to be teachers of the word and men of God. The challenge is that these philosophies and actions and attitudes come under a guise of righteousness. They come with the label Christian. Often, they misuse the word of God for their own gain. From satanic critical race theory, to insipid nationalism, to surrender to the sexual revolution, to feminism, to abusive leadership practices... These attitudes and these actions and these philosophies regularly gain footholds in the church. And as a result, we're instructed to mark and avoid the ones who peddle these views. We're not to put up with it. We're not to take interest in it. We're not to reason with it. We're not to excuse it. We are to turn from them in horror. Now... Before we address the two reasons given as to why we're to avoid them, I want to remind us of the keys we looked at last week to identify if a teaching, a philosophy, an attitude, an action is from God or is to be avoided. Remember last week I gave us three keys that are important as you look at that person peddling the word of God. Are they from God or are they not? Three keys to notice. The first is to examine the core of their teaching. The specific beliefs and ideas the teacher puts forward. Is the word of God the basis for everything he believes and does? Or do they just cherry pick pick verses to justify what they're trying to do? Do they take the word and break it out in its context and explain it out as God said and let God's words determine what they think? Or do they think what they think and then just go look for verses to fit what they want to think? The second guideline is to examine their personal character. It's reflection in their lifestyle. Do they live like people of God? Or are they hateful and angry and arrogant and bitter? A third guideline is to measure what their most ardent followers look like. If their followers, the people that have been under them a long time, are weak and confused and unconcerned about doctrine in the Word or in their living doesn't reflect biblical guidelines, then you can be sure that that is not a person following the Word of God. That they are not men of God. For The people will soon become like the leadership. If we look at these philosophies, these attitudes, these actions, and we determine that they're not grounded in the proper use of Scripture, then we're to avoid them. But God does not just give us the command. Hey, avoid them. He also tells us why. And He gives us two really good reasons why it's not just a bad thing to follow these people. It is dangerous to your soul. The two reasons are these. The first reason is this. Avoid them because of their depraved actions. Avoid them because of their depraved actions. He says in verse 6, Among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. He tells us they creep in, they worm their way into the church. It pictures the insidious methods that they use to gain a platform. And when they do this, they capture weak women. Literally, they take captive at spear point. They make them prisoners of war, these weak women. Now, don't get caught up. In that term, weak women. I know our culture today might get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in that. Paul does not use the term weak women to demean women, but to describe the specific situation in the church in Ephesus involving particular women. He's not intending to describe women in general. See, evidently, the false teachers sought out these women who were spiritually weak And then exerted such a powerful influence on them that the women actually lost their own freedom of thoughts. Perhaps they reasoned that once they had the women on their side, the men would follow. I mean, that's indeed the method used by Satan at the fall of man in Genesis 3. However, the emphasis in this passage is not on the gender of those who were deceived and preyed on by the false teachers, but rather on their character. It says they had bad character traits that can be found as readily in men as in women. Their weakness was double. First, they were morally weak. And second, they were intellectually weak. They were morally weak because they were burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. These sins had piled up over and over to where they were overwhelmed By their sin. These weak people are overwhelmed by past sin, and as a result, they're continually being led in the present by a multitude of sinful desires. They haven't found peace and they haven't found forgiveness in the cross. They've not come to God in repentance, confessing their sin and finding grace and forgiveness, and as a result, They're led astray. They're trying to find something to explain their sinfulness because it surely can't be their sinfulness. They can't be the problem. And so they're led astray. They're driven astray. And what these passions are that lead them astray are not stated. Perhaps the same passions that lead us astray today. Desire to find an easy way around our guilty conscience. I can't be guilty because I'm guilty. It's got to be somebody else's fault. Or maybe it's a desire to gain recognition, to just be part of that group. Or to be considered well-informed. Or to have attention given to us by those we deem important. In any case, not dealing with our sin properly always leads to more sin. Failure to repent of sin and acknowledge our need of grace always leads us away from God, not to God. Second, they were intellectually weak, unstable, and gullible. It says they were learning, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. They're always being taught that word learning is learning through instruction, always getting information, but never coming to a recognition, never actually seeing the truth. See, the terrible consequence of the false teaching that infiltrates the church is that those most burdened by their sin never really learn the truth that can make them free. They keep seeking after the truth, but because they're looking in the wrong place, they never find it. The result is a person who is angry because they just can't figure out why it's not working, why others aren't agreeing with them. My life is so hard. They keep learning, but they never figure it out because they can't see the truth. The truth of the gospel that we're depraved sinners in need of God and that through His Word and obedience to His Word, we find grace, we find strength, and we thrive. They're bitter people because they can't admit their sin. And so it takes root in their soul and so they can be characterized as people who are just plain unhappy paul then compares these false teachers that are taking these people captive with their false teaching to two egyptian magicians who opposed moses verse 8 just as janus and Jambres opposed moses so these men also opposed the truth men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith now who are Janus and Jambries? You do a study in the Word of God, and you don't find their name anywhere else. What are they talking about? Well, Jewish tradition stated that these were the names of the two ringleaders among the magicians in Exodus seven through 9, who replicated the plagues and signs from God that Moses was doing in order to free the people of Israel. The magicians are not named in the Old Testament. Jewish tradition developed the names Janus and Jamres. They're mentioned in several Jewish writings and literature and by several secular writers. We don't know their real names. Whatever their real names may have been, they became known to the Jews as Janus and Jamres, most likely because of the symbolism of those names. In Aramaic, Janus means he who seduces, and Jambres means he who makes rebellious. And so they became symbolic Of those who oppose the truth. These two men came to represent Moses' arch nemesis, who would always counter the displays of divine power with various tricks of their own. Over time, they also began to be associated with other biblical narratives, like Balaam, or like the uh, Israelites trailing the Israelites through the wilderness and provoking them to their sin, instigating the Golden Calf Rebellion. And as a result, they acquired symbolic status as opponents of the truth. That's the sense that Paul is using here. These men who were creeping into the church, worming their way into Christianity and peddling their false religion, were like these rebellious men against the truth of God and his delegated authority. In other words, when we follow these false philosophies, we walk step in step of the satanic magicians in Egypt who sought to keep the people of God enslaved. These false teachers are satanic in their actions. That's why it's so dangerous to follow them. That's why we have to be discerning with who we listen to. And these false teachers are described in two ways. First, they are men of depraved minds, literally malfunctioning minds, unable to discern between error and truth. The truth can't even reach them and impact them because their conscience, their minds had ceased to function. Further, in Romans 1, as a backdrop... It means that these false teachers are actually under the judgment of God. It says that this depraved mind is a judgment from God. Second, Paul categorizes these people as those whose faith has been tested and found unfit. They've disqualified themselves from ministry. So, they're to be rejected out of hand. Their depraved actions reveal that they should be turned from in horror in horror. We don't try and weed out the good things they say from the bad things they say. We reject them out of hand because of the danger that they oppose. And so those false teachers that tell you, "Take your Bible out and say this little ditty." Okay, put it back down and never look at it again, smiling the whole time telling you about how you can have your best life now are to be rejected. Be careful about what you watch. Be careful about who you listen to because their actions will lead you into sin. But secondly, we're to avoid them because their folly will be apparent. We're to avoid them because of their actions, their their depraved actions, but also because their folly will be apparent. Verse 9, But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that, Of those two men. Eventually all falsehood. Will be revealed. For what it is. False teachers will be exposed. For their error. The Egyptian musicians. Eventually came to a point. Where they could no longer fake. These actions. They couldn't deal. They couldn't replicate. The plague of gnats. Or the plague of the boils. And they failed on that day of Passover. When the firstborn of every Egyptian was killed, all evil eventually will be outed. The history of the church is filled with illustrations of those who were accepted and followed as teachers. People who men of God spoke out against and were belittled for it. Yet in the end, the false teachers were revealed for their falsehood. We live in a wicked age. We need to understand this wicked age we live in. We need to understand what we face. We also need to understand that this wickedness is not just outside. It creeps into the church. It creeps into Christianity. And we need to be on guard against that. Next week, we'll see that another step to being on guard or able to live in our wicked world is to hold fast to the truth and the sufficiency of the word of God. But what are we supposed to do with all we've discussed the last two weeks? As we live in a wicked world, what should we do with all of this? Let me give you a handful of so what's as we conclude. First, it's vital that we understand the day we live in for what it is. It is the last days. This means that the church is in spiritual warfare. Dangerous times will come. This evil is not going to abate. It's just going to get worse. Be aware of that. Be prepared for that. Second, we must understand that the answer to the evil of the world is the gospel. The answer cannot be found in political reform. For at its heart, it's not a political problem. The answer cannot be found in social reform. For at its heart, it's not a social problem. The answer is only the gospel. Only the gospel can remake creation. Only the gospel can resurrect dead hearts. Only the truth that Jesus died for sin and invites us to become a part of his kingdom through the repentance of sin and faith in him can make true change happen. Because at its heart, it's a heart problem. So we need to understand the answer to the evil. It's not in seeing different legislation pass, although we want good legislation. It's not in seeing different politicians in office, although we want good politicians in office. It's not in seeing great social welfare reform actions, although we want to see the poor and the weak helped. The answer is the gospel. Third, we must be discerning testing every message that claims to be Christian against God's word. God's word. This book is always the only and final authority. We don't look to this book to affirm what we think. We let this book determine what we think. That's an important difference. Many false teachers are at work today. Some are obvious. Some are more subtle. We must run everything through the proper interpretation of God's word. It must be the final authority. Finally, we must be pure and holy vessels of honor for the Lord to use. We are in a wicked world And so we must live out our faith in the midst of a lost and dying world. We must live according to the word of God. We must grow in our walk with him. We must live for the kingdom of God, not this world. We must live out the word. Next week, we'll look at the next section of chapter 3. It informs us just exactly how we can do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you said you would preserve your church, that the gates of hell would not prevail against it, that in the end all things will be made right. You will separate out the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. But Lord, until that day, help us to be discerning in our walk with you to value your word above all things and to be like the Bereans that search the word diligently to see whether what is said is true. We thank you that you have not left us without hope. We thank you that you have not left us without instruction. Help us to be people of God who value the gospel and will impact this world for the kingdom of God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.